Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Bardflies, a podcast about elaborate, feel-good revenge plots, not-so-noble savages, the magic of romance, and capital's abuse of non-unionized sprites. I'm Will Quinn. And I'm James Smith. This is episode 37, Stuff as Schemes Are Made Of. This island is mine! James, would you care to give us a plot summary of The Tempest? Well, Will, for over 12 years, the great sorcerer Prospero has lived in exile. The former Duke of Milan, he was forced from power by his brother Antonio and Alonso, the King of Naples, who took advantage of his decision to dedicate himself to the study of magic rather than to affairs of state. He escaped Italy with his daughter Miranda and alighted upon the island where he has ruled ever since. There, he has used his powers to lord over the magical forces of the island, including the spirit Ariel and the monstrous Caliban the son of the witch who previously ruled the island, and an unsavory character who once tried to rape Miranda. Everything changes, however, when a ship carrying Antonio, Alonzo, and their men passes the island one day, and Prospero summons a storm with the help of Ariel that throws them into the storm-tossed sea. Seeing an opportunity to win back his dukedom, the wily magician separates the castaways with the aim of working his revenge and puts the ship crew into a deep sleep for future use. We first meet Ferdinand, Alonzo's son and the future king of Naples, who is lovestruck when he encounters Miranda. She, likewise, has never met an eligible bachelor before, and so they fall madly in love. But Prospero decides to test Ferdinand by forcing him to carry wood and perform menial tasks for him. Elsewhere on the island, Antonio, Alonzo, Alonzo's brother Sebastian, and the kindly Gonzalo, who helped Prospero and Miranda escape, have all washed ashore together. Alonzo is despondent, believing that Ferdinand, his son and heir, must have drowned in the storm. But he has other problems too. The treacherous Sebastian and Antonio are conspiring to kill him so that Sebastian can inherit the throne. Treachery is afoot elsewhere as well. The jester Trinculo and the drunken butler Stefano come across Caliban, whom they win over with plentiful libations of sack. Caliban convinces them to help him kill Prospero so they can rule the island together, with Caliban as their drunken familiar. As in all things, Prospero's servant Ariel is his chief agent in managing this cast of characters. He first sets Caliban's group against one another to great comic effect. Then he takes on the appearance of a harpy with Antonio, Alonso, and Sebastian to terrify them and spur their remorse for their evil deeds. He then puts on a mask with other spirits to bless the engagement of Miranda to Ferdinand, who has sufficiently pleased his soon-to-be father-in-law, and to instruct the young couple on the importance of marriage. In exchange for this one-stop shop of magical problem-solving, all Ariel wants is his freedom, which Prospero has promised. But not quite yet. In the middle of the mask, Prospero remembers that Caliban is still conspiring to kill him. He sends the dutiful Ariel off to deal with Caliban, Trinculo, and Stefano, who are chased into the interior of the island by goblins, and pledges that once his plot is complete, he will free Ariel and forsake magic once and for all. In the final act of the play, Ariel brings Alonzo, Antonio, and Sebastian to Prospero, who forgives the men and is restored as the rightful duke. A remorseful Caliban seemingly repents for his plot, and Ariel wakes the ship's crew to sail the nobles back to Naples where Ferdinand and Miranda will marry. In his final order to Ariel, 
Prospero asks for good weather, and then frees his most loyal aide. Finally, Prospero turns to the audience after breaking his staff and drowning his book of magic, and asks that the audience set him free, and suspend the magic of a wild night of theater. And that, Will, is the plot of The Tempest. Wonderful, James. Thank you, as always, for your uh, mellifluous voice and intonations of this very fine plot summary. Will, let me let me start by, uh, I, I don't know if you remember this or if you're aware of this, but uh, this, this play is more, I don't know dear to my heart, but more near to my heart, perhaps, than some of the others. I, I, um, you, you may recall that in our sophomore fall of college, I performed in The Tempest as one half of Caliban. The Caliban role was split into two parts. And I was, of course, the much worse looking and less <laughs> well-spoken and poorly acted part. Just a, a, a factoid for our Bardflies listeners. Hopefully there are no videos of that performance extant in the world. But, Will, in terms of starting our conversation here, uh, my first question for you, this play obviously takes place on a deserted island. And I, I want to ask you, where do you think this island actually is? Because on the one hand, if you go just by the text of the play, it would seem that it is somewhere in the Mediterranean between Tunisia and Italy just based on the toings and froings of the characters and where Antonio and Alonso, etc., are coming from. But the island really feels like it's meant to represent virgin, unspoiled nature, in a way. So do you have any thoughts on this? Is there a way to reconcile those two divergent settings? Yeah, I think that there is, James. I mean, to to recap, the whole reason that Alonzo, Antonio, Sebastian, and the whole crew are sailing is to go to Alonzo's daughter's wedding to, I believe, the king of Tunis in North Africa. So they're sort of jumping down there and then somewhere, presumably on their way back, they shipwreck. Yet you also have references from Ariel to getting the dues of Bermuda and bringing them to Prospero. And there are various other references that sort of suggest this is somewhere maybe in the New World. It's not entirely clear, but it's clearly supposed to be this kind of interesting space, bounteous, unspoiled world, as you say, and maybe a little bit a little bit of a magical location betwixt and between these places. What we do know about this play, in my copious Wikipedia research, uh, I've discovered, you know, Shakespeare drew on some source material for, for this one. It's a wholly original plot, but he draws on uh, an essay by Montaigne about cannibals. Montaigne was writing about Brazil. And then also draws upon the story of this shipwreck on the way to Jamestown, where one of the survivors you know, was stranded in Bermuda and eventually made his way back to Britain after being rescued and had a whole narrative that was published at the time in, in England, uh, sort of talking about things. So clearly he's drawing on source material from the New World and mm -hmm. also setting it in this kind of magical world of kind of quasi-antiquity Italy, kind of the usual Shakespearean mashup. Yeah. Um, so, well, yeah. I'll say, regardless of the actual physical location of the island, right, it seems that 
what he's doing is... Uh, now, I, I guess I can't say this definitively because I, I suppose this kind of plot and idea could have originated with, without an awareness of the New World, of, you know, of the Americas or, or whatever at the time. But it does seem like whether or not the island is actually located in the Caribbean or, or somewhere near America, it is nonetheless spiritually informed by the idea of the untamed wild island and kind of these competing questions of is the new world, is the wild untamed, untouched, uncivilized expanse, is it Eden or is it actually chaos and, and bad, <laughs> you know? Right. There, right. there seems to be, to me, a little bit of, uh, of ambivalence over that question. And, and I, I don't know if he's quite able to decide for himself what the answer to that is. Yeah, I completely agree. I think one of the things that's very striking about the island in particular is that it's completely bountiful on the one hand. Caliban takes Trinculo and Stefano and promises to show them the food that is basically just spilling forth from the plants and animals of the island to feed them. And then on the other hand, right, well, Caliban's mother was a witch who dominated the island and had Ariel enslaved. Uh, and Caliban isn't exactly uh, much to write home about, too, given that he you know, is an unrepented attempted rapist. And, you know, very clearly, despite Prospero ruling over the whole place, he's eager to get back to Italy and sort of be restored to his position. So it's clearly not a full paradise, whatever magic and uh, bounty might actually be on the island. Yeah, I just, Will, I just want to read uh, one section here for our listeners where you have in Act 2, Scene 1, there's this whole back and forth between Antonio, Sebastian, Gonzalo, and Adrian. Adrian is one of the other, you know, one of the other marooned sailors talking about the island and they have this back and forth where one character will say, Though this island seemed to be desert, <laughs> uninhabitable and almost inaccessible. Yes. Yet, I could not miss it. The air breathes upon us here most sweetly. As if it had lungs. And rotten ones. Or as for perfumed by a fern. Here is everything advantageous to life. True save means to live. Of that there's none or little. How lush and lusty the grass looks. Hmm? How green. The ground indeed is tawny. With an eye of green in it. In that passage, you directly hear the contradiction and like the, the different perspectives of different characters, right? So it doesn't seem that Shakespeare is explicitly saying, you know, this new place is paradise, or he's saying that it's barbarous and, and bad. It's more like, he's not sure. He's ambivalent. Different people have different perspectives on it. And I think similarly, it's, it's a little telling that uh, Prospero and Alonzo want to get back to Italy and back to civilization, right? Where they presumably are at the top of the, of the ladder. And Trinculo and Stefano want to become the kings of the island and stay on the island forever and, and rule with Caliban as their lackey. Mm. You know, so there's, I think there's a little bit of social commentary there too about, you know, who wants to stay and why and who wants to go and why. Yeah. Is a little yeah. externally determined. Yeah, well. absolutely. And just because they happen to be in this new world or sort of idyllic island setting 
does not mean that there isn't political upheaval, to your point, just that about the aborted or failed plot against Prospero, you know, or the domination of the island by a witch who had enslaved the quite accommodating and pleasant spirit Ariel at the end of mm-hmm. the day. So you don't really get to abrogate the basic conditions of political life, of conflict between various people in these positions, which is an interesting insight in a way. I It's kind of funny. I was thinking about this, this Montaigne essay, which, you know, I think part of what Montaigne was doing when he was writing this essay that Shakespeare apparently used was talking about, well, you know, the, the cannibals, they're not so bad in Brazil. They're following these customs that are different from our own. There's uh, barbarism in Europe as well. And that's all well and true and worth keeping in mind from a sort of relativistic position. But there's barbarism everywhere, I think, is maybe the mm-hmm. point to really to really take away here in addition to, to things that might be good or valuable or uh, beautiful and, and bountiful, you also have the flip side of that. And I think it's quite telling that Prospero wants to actually be restored to his position and, and get back to something approximating his normal life, even by getting rid of his power, um, his, his magical powers. So yeah, for sure. It's interesting. I mean, one thing that comes up when you see this performed, and, and I saw a production of this play at the Shakespeare Theatre Company here in Washington a number of years ago, is trying to sort of make this about colonialism and taking Caliban and, and Sigarax as his mother, the witch, as people that are the colonized. But, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know. I, I, I think it's a little bit more ambivalent and complex than that in practice. I think that's one valid lens to read the play, but it's definitely not unambiguous in that sense. You know, I think it, you're going to encounter challenges in just reading it in a simplistic way. Well, let's talk about that a little bit, because I, I understand that that is the temptation. And I think, you know, that also goes to, and we've talked about this other with other plays, Will, right? But that goes to the desire to find the way in that will, you know, make the play relevant, right? Like, we've talked a lot about, when we've talked about adaptation, right? We've talked a lot about the play commenting on, on contemporary things, but also using contemporary mm-hmm. things to comment on the play, right. right? In this case, I don't see that Shakespeare is using his play to comment on issues that we would recognize. But I maybe do see those performances as using the contemporary adaptation to comment on Shakespeare, right? Because, I mean, if there's any character in the play who it seems obvious we're supposed to view as unambiguously bad. It's Caliban, I think. I I think it's very hard to read this play and view Caliban in anything resembling a positive interpretation without jumping through some serious intellectual and psychological hoops, right? I mean, he tried to rape Miranda. He tries to kill Prospero. And just in his presentation, right, he's, he's portrayed as this sort of bestial, subhuman character. So I struggle to view that as as Shakespeare making some critical comment on colonial efforts. And I don't even really know, I mean, what, this is 16, what do we think? This is 1610-ish that this play is written? I mean, that's yeah. 15 years before the Massachusetts Bay Colony, right? 10 years before 
Plymouth, you know, obviously these colonial endeavors are in the air and probably people are talking about them, but I don't know that there's even really enough evidence for there to be a comment on it from an English perspective. Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess this is the challenge, right? And I think we've talked about this in glancing ways throughout the pod about how much you can really bring from outside the text itself. And I think this is actually a complicated question with The Tempest because... In some ways, yes, like Shakespeare could have conjured and created a lot of the specifics of this play and the sort of imaginary world that he builds without reference to colonialism as you or I certainly would understand it, or even people at the time might. But from what we do know about his source material, it's very much something that informs the play, right? Mm -hmm. So in a sense, right, he could have created it without reference to those materials or those ideas but a sort of transatlantic concept and the idea of sort of the Americas and colonialism or sort of settlement by Europeans in far-flung places. I mean, that's that was not alien to him. Like, it was clearly a theme or a, a subject that he found interesting in some way. Yes. Yeah, uh, yeah, and yeah. so I think that's, that's kind of one of the interesting things here is, like, I agree with you in, in the main, but... This is like what makes Shakespeare so appealing in some ways is that the director and dramaturg and cast and and set designer, they can actually take this play and bring some things to it that are maybe latent. I even think the character of Caliban, like I agree with you, he's not terribly sympathetic in the story in in any sense, nor do I think he is meant to be. But he is not actually punished with this severity that Trinculo and uh, Stefano actually are, who get basically run off, whereas Caliban kind of apologizes and isn't mm-hmm. really you know, smited for, for his trouble. So there's something interesting there, and it, you can see how a, a certain director might take the fact that even Caliban is sort of uh, hateful towards Prospero and is unrepentant about his um, effort to rape Miranda. You could even see somebody taking that and saying, well, this is sort of what colonial violence and enslavement can do to people and so on and so forth. I, I think that's a little bit of a stretch personally, but yes, but I, there. I, I think, you know, you I think do you're something with that. I think I think you're echoing a bit of what I was trying and, and, and I guess failing to say, Will, which is like, you know, I view the treatment of Caliban as a noble savage in quotations as that right as as using Shakespeare's presentation to comment on Shakespeare's view of this character Mm. that is informed by our own historical experience, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think there's value in that, to be clear. You know, it all depends how how literal to the text you want to be, because I think you can be loyal to the text and the basic story that Shakespeare tells, but there's a great deal that you can do you know, sort of between the lines or sort of bringing... It reads differently, right? And there's more of a complexity to say Caliban than because he's such a a great contrasting character to this in all ways and to all of Shakespeare's villains. So you have Caliban, right? But then you have Aaron the Moor, right? There's no complexity, really, to the treatment of Aaron the Moor. Aaron the Moor is a villain, and we know that, you know, partially because he has dark skin. Like, there's no real complexity to that. He's kind of the mustache-twirling villain. It's very different than... It's very different than... What's the line I, I... My only regret, he says something like, my only regret is that I didn't live to commit more crimes or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. That's it. That's actually almost literally what he says. 
whereas Caliban wouldn't go so far as to say Caliban is um, this deep character that deserves endless pity or study, but is more a figure of pity than Aaron the Moore, certainly, even if he doesn't really rise to the complexity of someone like Shylock, right, who we've talked about before from Merchant of Venice. So there's an interesting kind of thing going on here where I think that there is complexity and you can sort of run with it if you're an enterprising director, but you're not necessarily bound to it either. Like, there are multiple ways to read this play and read this story, and the, the sort of colonial thing is only one potential dimension that you can go in. Yeah, well, can we talk a, a quick moment about the elimination of social barriers in this play? Because I, I think that is an interesting component here and one that, at the very least, Shakespeare is someone who's interested in sort of social inversion, right? And putting people into different social power structures than they're used to and subverting those kinds of expectations, as well as, you know, there, there's a way in which this play almost reads like... <laughs> Like, it almost reads like it is Prospero putting everyone into play where they're acting out the roles that he assigns them. And that has a little bit of that same valence to me of, like, making people believe that reality is a certain way. And it's it's almost got that Christopher Sly thing all over again Mm -hmm. that we... That was so evident in in some of the early plays and then became less prominent. But I... I I sort of want to touch on it because I'm I'm interested in seeing what we can pull out about Shakespeare's opinion about this or things that he theorizes because, you know, we talked already a little bit about the ambivalence, right? Is it a good place? Is is it not a good place? You know, who is it a good place for? I, I found myself wondering about, like, the bounty of nature versus the drudgery of agrarian society. Mm. I recently will, I I don't think we talked about this previously, but I recently read uh, Paradise Lost. Mm. Yeah. And I don't, I don't think I'm making any super deep, you know, I I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm making an observation that hasn't been made before, but of course in Paradise Lost, he's Milton is recapitulating the story of the fall of man and the garden of Eden and whatnot. And, and there's a subtext to it, which is that humans live in the garden of Eden. Adam and Eve live in the garden of Eden where essentially everything is provided for them. They just have to go and gather the fruit and tell the animals what to do and whatnot, and everything's fine. And then once they sin, they are cast out, and the consequence of being cast out is that now they have to work the land. <laughs> and the, the reason this was so remarkable to me was because, uh, I don't know if you've ever read Sapiens, Will. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But Sapiens, and I remember at the time I read Sapiens, and I was very sort of skeptical of the central claim, which ends up being that maybe it was a bad thing when humans went from being hunter-gatherers to living in agrarian societies. And yet, then when you revisit the Garden of Eden story from that perspective, it seems like that's what the entire story is is about, basically. And that necessitates the creation of societies, the creation of hierarchies, etc. So, so sorry, this, is, this has been yeah. wandering a little bit. But I sort of see that in this play, right, where everyone is freed from their hierarchies and it seems to enable like one it seems to enable the plot to assassinate alonzo you know now that sebastian and antonio are outside of the bounds of their normal society they can try to commit murder it mm-hmm. similarly enables sebastian trinculo to want to just stand silent forever so i don't know what do you what do you think about all this yeah i mean i think that what's interesting about it is there's both hierarchy on the island you know, there continues to be a hierarchy on the island. Prospero rules it as a virtual dictator, 
right? And, you know, or, or sort of the theater director using everybody as his pawns as he basically writes the plot of the entire show. We can get into that in a little bit. But, you know, in, in one sense, right, Prospero was deposed as the Duke of Milan, and now he's effectively the Duke and, and sole ruler of the island, has Ariel and uh, Caliban basically enslaved to him. And then his daughter is kind of wandering around the island doing her thing, but greatly misses society, which can't really be sustained with just Ariel and Caliban as Mm -hmm. companions, or her father for that matter. When other people arrive on the island and they are removed from their particular context, right, which is the Italian peninsula and the places from which they come, their own kingdoms. It's a huge opportunity for the lesser characters to depose the powers that be. And I think that's actually rather telling and interesting because it's a mixture of incredible vulnerability for those who are in power when they're sort of removed from their context. But Mm -hmm. it is also a place where hierarchy gets reimposed in various ways and how, um, even in the case of Prospero, Miranda, Caliban, and, and Ariel, Miranda is basically deeply unhappy, you get the sense, living in yeah. this world where there's no society and no companionship. And I think that's actually one of the striking things about the idea that this land and this space is supposed to be totally idyllic. Well, it's clearly not, right? Because Prospero and Miranda both want to get back for different reasons to the place from which they came right? And to be reintegrated and sort of enfolded into society again. So there's something going on here about the ways in which hierarchy can be reimposed in a bad way, but is also sought after elsewhere in a good way. And the way that it creates lack of hierarchy creates opportunity for certain people to try and ascend to Mm -hmm. the top. Anyway, I think it's working in multiple directions, which I think is kind of fascinating. I would say... I feel like, or I felt like reading the play that it basically, if you'll allow me to coin this term, Will, it it sort of pre-capitulates the Locke-Hobbes divergence, Mm. where like, on the one hand, you have this presentation of the state of nature as this sort of idyllic place where everything is in common, right? Gonzalo has this long discourse in Act 2 where he's talking about all things in common nature should produce without sweat or endeavor, treason, felony, sword, pike, knife, gun, or need of any engine would I not have, but nature should bring forth of its own kind all foys and all abundance to feed my innocent people. You know, like this this idea that the island and, you know, the, the world without society can actually be a world where there is no real conflict and just right. all men are provided for as they need. But then, as you say hierarchies are reimposed even within the context of that and there's the constant you know becomes an an opportunity for competition for plotting for the coups d'etat as it were and so there seems to be i I don't know that shakespeare kind of gives us an answer about which of those he believes is more true you know whether it's the state of nature as tahiti or the state of nature as like the blasted wilderness of of like a volcano where people are killing each other (laughs) but (laughs) I guess I would only say about that they do all choose to leave in the end, right? right? They all do choose to go back to civilization. So I guess you could make the argument that that's just the demands of this story structure and mm-hmm. of like what the audience expects. But it's not, uh, it's definitely not unambivalent. 
Yeah, and I think that ambivalence is actually reflected if you think about our actual history, right, or the actual history of some of these idyllic places. I mean, many of the people who made their fortunes in the Caribbean, Europeans, that is, they were pretty eager to be living back in London or Paris yep. or wherever, right? They frequently relied, and this was part of the, the challenge that uh, they and the people that ended up being you know, enslaved by them were dealing with was absentee rulers from afar and all of the perverse kind of incentives and extra levels of violence that that was creating. The point, more or less, is just that um, even in a place that people would go to on vacation now, like you know Jamaica or various places in the West Indies, these were incredibly brutal, unpleasant places to live for many, many, yeah, the vast majority of the people that have lived on these places, I think, have experienced them in various ways as such. I'm maybe yeah. exaggerating a little bit, but certainly extremely, extremely difficult and desperate wilderness, not just sort of idyllic paradise. And I think that's something that Shakespeare probably would have had maybe not full awareness of because it hadn't really happened yet. But I mean, there are people that are going and trying to colonize and are getting, you know, dropping like flies from various diseases that they're not prepared for. This is not an uncomplicated, oh, I'm moving to Tahiti, going like yeah. full Paul Gauguin style. You know what I mean? Well, it's, yeah, uh, I, it's I not guess what I would. For any um, party there. I guess what I would observe about it is regardless of, you know, the awareness of the actual historical events that were going to happen, right? He seems. He seems aware of the fundamental tension that I think we see in, in American history, right, of the Mayflower, right, of, of these original colonizers that really believe that they could go to the new, the new world and create a utopia, right, that they could create this ideal society because they were moving to a place where there were no rules or there was no pre-existing social structure that they needed to conform to. And, of course, what actually ended up happening was death, despair, war, famine, and pestilence. So what I see in this, and, and again, this may definitely be uh, my contemporary reading back into Shakespeare, to be clear, but what I see it in, in it is an awareness that these kind of utopian visions are doomed to some level of failure. Yeah, I think, I think more or less. I think that um, you can have more and less successful versions of them, depending on sort of what your expectations are going in. In some ways, I actually think that the, the people that settled Massachusetts Bay Colony and, you know, the Plymouth Plantation came a lot closer to realizing their ideal than many others that have embarked with, with similar hopes. But that's sort of a, a different conversation. I do think that in this particular case, right, you can't really run away from all of the social conflicts and even just pure survival challenges that end up arising yeah. in these places, whether it's from a tempest or uh, you know the potential coup d'etats originating within the island or yes. beyond. <laughs> so, Speaking yeah, of coup d'etats, Will, I think we should speak about the subject of, the, of at least two of these coups d'etat, uh, which is Prospero, the main character of this drama. So... I don't think it's unfair to say that Prospero essentially drives and dictates the entire plot of this play. Prospero almost seems to be the author of the play to the degree that there is practically no real conflict in the play. It just feels like we are watching the play act out Prospero's 
dictates of what each person should be feeling and doing at each moment. And, and they all essentially conform to what those things are. So without going too far into my own views on it, what, what are, what, what's your initial read on this character, Will? Yeah, so I think Prospero is a fascinating character in some ways, partially because he calls all of the shots, you know, to include basically bringing the play to a start with the Tempest that he helps engineer and bringing it to a halt when he asks Ariel to generate fair winds and following seas when they when they sail off. A lot of people have interpreted Prospero as sort of a, a stand-in for Shakespeare as the author and director of the play, and I think that the, that's a very fair reading. And I would go as far as to say that it's hard not to. Yeah, it's hard not to. And in fact, there's the wonderful epilogue speech by Prospero where he says as much. Now my charms are all overthrown, and what strength I have's mine own, which is most faint. Now it is true I must be here confined by you, or sent to Naples. Let me not, since I have my dukedom got, and pardon the deceiver, dwell in this bare island by your spell. But release me from my bands with the help of your good hands. Gentle breath of yours, my sails must fill, or else my project fails, which was to please. Now I want spirits to enforce, art, to enchant, and my ending is despair unless I be relieved by prayer, which pierces so that it assaults mercy itself and frees all faults, as you from crimes would pardoned be, let your indulgence set me free. Obviously, that speech explicitly speaks to the idea of Prospero as the person who is conjuring up the theatrical delights of The Tempest for a live audience. And and so I think that, on the one hand, that sort of works in a way that there's no conflict in a sense, because he's sort of the godlike figure that's directing everything. There is conflict, but you know how it's going to end, basically, because he's all-powerful. One of the few moments where... You get the sense things could go other the other way is when he forgets about Caliban's plot and interrupts the mask midway through to say, oh, I forgot about Caliban. And he decides, oh, we got to stop the mask and I got to go deal with this other thing. But that's almost incidental. I guess my, my main point there is um, if this is all very good natured revenge play in a sense, I think the thrill of it is watching Prospero spin all of these plates at the same time with Ariel's help. And it's really more about the how of it than what's going to happen per se, right? It's him sort of engineering the outcomes he wants and Ariel being used to creative effect to those ends mm-hmm. that makes it fun. In some ways, right, actually, a curious at your reaction, this kind of reminded me a little bit of The Count of Monte Cristo. And the reason I say that is long sort of revenge plot Part of the thrill of that, right, is you see Dante's undone and then ascending to power and working his revenge in various ways and sort of bringing it about. And the only question is sort of how it's going to happen at a certain mm-hmm. point and whether he can ultimately resolve these feelings within himself. And that's kind of the story. 
And I think it's kind of the story with Prospero too, ultimately, right? Because he renounces magic at the end. So I think that's well, actually this, what's going this is on. Interesting. You know? I'm actually very interested in this question because I, you're arguing essentially that the central conflict of the Tempest is an internal conflict on the part of Prospero. Yes, I think that that is one way of reading it. I think something depends on the performance here, but I, I do think that this sort of dialogue with Ariel suggests that, right? Where he's constantly being asked by Ariel to set him free, and he continues to keep Ariel in hawk mm-hmm. to work his will. And he ultimately pledges, right, to uh, break his staff and drown his book. Ye elves of hills, brooks, standing lakes and groves, and ye that on the sand with printless foot do chase the ebbing Neptune and do fly him when he comes back, you demi-puppets that by moonshine do the green sour ringlets make whereof the you not bites, and you whose pastime is to make midnight mushrooms that rejoice to hear the solemn curfew by whose aid weak masters though ye be, I have bedimmed the noontide sun, brought forth the mutinous winds, and twixt the green sea and the azure vaults at roaring war. To the dread rattling thunder have I given fire, and rifted Jove's stout oak with his own bolt. The strong-based promontory have I made shake, and by the spurs plucked up the pine and cedar. Graves at my command have waked their sleepers, oped and let them forth. By my so potent art. But this rough magic I hear abjure, and when I have required some heavenly music, which even now I do, to work mine end upon their senses that this airy charm is for, I'll break my staff. Bury it certain fathoms in the earth, and deeper than did ever plummet sound, I'll drown my book. He ultimately makes those promises, but you get the sense he's been having a good time as the lord and ruler of the island and the person with magic and power at his disposal. So in a sense, isn't this about accepting one's age and accepting that you know you no longer need to wield power in such a way. So, well, yeah, I can I, see that. Interesting. I, I would almost go in an opposite direction with it, Will, which is that it seems like, from what we know of Prospero's backstory, it seems like he was, as the Duke of Milan, much too invested in his library. I mean, he talked about how much he loved his library and loved learning and, and basically about how he wasn't interested in the exercise of power. He was more interested in using the time that it gave him to be in the library, essentially. You know, and then ultimately he's going to go back and try to be a better ruler. Now, I don't I don't think he ever explicitly says that now he's going to be a better duke than he was. And in fact, in fact, he talks about how the people of Milan love him and how, you know, they were so angry that he was overthrown or, you know, it might be overstating that, but... It sort of seems like he believes that he will be welcomed back with open arms, right? 
And so it seems like he's actually leaving the setting where he can continue his studies and do the thing that he really wants to enjoy doing and go back to what he might view as the drudgery of ruling. So I guess here's maybe where I think that the difference in sort of our interpretations and emphasis, I think Prospero is an older man, right? And I think mm -hmm. he, and he even makes reference to this at, at some point uh, or multiple points in the play, but I think he's... He's on the back nine, as it were, you know, maybe even in the sort of final few holes of the golf course to extend the metaphor a little bit. He knows he's sort of on his way out, and I think he wants to be restored to dignity. He wants to see his daughter, you know, married off to the right person and sort of a, a sense that all will be well and right with the universe. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, I actually see him as somebody who is... He's sort of come to a wisdom over the course of everything that's happened to him. And he's sort of rewrited things in the world, but he can abjure and get rid of the things that brought him ultimately a great deal of power, but also kind of kept him on this island where he was lording over people in a very instrumental way. And now he gets to come back, be restored to his position, but he, you don't get the sense he's really worked up or even particularly invested in the affairs of state because he doesn't have all that long left, right. per se, right? Like, I think that's sort of where, where I'm going in, in some ways or something that informs my reading of him, which is that he's had a good run as lord of this island, but he no longer needs to wield the magical powers that he spent so much time acquiring. And I think power can take it out of you in some ways. So him going back and kind of taking on this almost ceremonial role as the Duke, where he's respected and restored, I don't get the sense he's got a lot of heavy ruling left in him either. Right. But that's, that's my sort of read of the character. Yeah, um, well, you, you actually get to one of my questions about him, which is, you know, you get to the scene where he, where he does abjure magic, right? Where he, where he commits to breaking his staff and drowning his book, etc., and I found myself wondering, well, like, why? Why does he do this? Or why does he feel like he needs to do this? And I don't know that the play gave me at least an adequate answer to that, other than that, I, I mean, I think it's clearly intended to be a final movement for him and represent his split with the island. But I also kind of found myself wondering, well, like, why characterologically does this need to happen to complete his journey? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I think this goes again to aging and also what power can do to you. And I think the epilogue also touches on this a little bit, where he talks about how all of his charms are all overthrown and what strength I have is mine own, which is most faint. I think that the exercise of power can be a little bit exhausting, right? And then it puts you in a different relationship to those around you than maybe ideal or really sustainable over a long period of time. So in a sense, I can see him voluntarily getting rid of his magic because the time for that has passed and mm -hmm. he wants to exist in a different way in relation to the people around him. And I think one of the ways that you could play the Ariel-Prospero dynamic is that Ariel is clearly asked for his freedom multiple times. Prospero is constantly chiding Ariel, not just yet, 
also, don't forget who freed you from being trapped by Cigarax uh, within a tree, and I released you and show some gratitude. I imagine that being in that position would take it out of, of anyone, whether you're in the position of being the indentured uh, mm-hmm. servant or, or slave, really, or in the case of the master figure here, too. So I guess that's sort of where I'm going with this, is that I think it's, um, you know, power is, is something that we've seen across Shakespeare's plays, not always having great long-term effects on the people that mm-hmm. build it. And I think the wiser of them know this to a certain degree. And it's actually kind of striking and maybe ironic that Prospero acquired all of his magical skills and was deposed for his trouble uh, when he was back in regular society. And it's only when yep. he's on the island that he's undisputed master, but he, he finds himself wanting to renounce that as well. That's my reading of it anyway. Yeah, I'm interested also in the the relation of Prospero to Shakespeare. I mean, I was very struck by that ending epilogue and that particularly the last few lines of, you know, my ending is despair unless I be relieved by prayer. And then as you from crimes would pardon be, let your indulgence set me free. There is definitely, I think, a sense there of the labor yeah. of ruling, perhaps, or the labor of, of power. And from the Shakespeare perspective, you, you, I mean, or, or if you want to read Prospero as Shakespeare, which I personally, as I said, I think is a very compelling reading, it, it seems like... I was interested in this idea that being the writer, being the, the person putting on the yeah. show, being the creator, gives you immense power, but also is immensely exhausting. Yeah. You know, and yeah. you can sort of read that speech, I think, as Shakespeare begging the audience, like, don't make me do this again. Like, I, I don't make me come back for Henry VIII, <laughs> for <laughs> well, instance. Right. I mean, I think that uh, there is a sort of sentimental reading of this as Shakespeare's farewell to the theater. I don't know how, whether that can be really sustained, but we do know that this is, I think this is the last play that he wrote solo. People mm-hmm. generally say that you know, the last two, which we're getting to, Henry VIII, which you mentioned, and Two Noble Noble Kinsmen. Those are both collaborative works. You know, and who knows? I mean, obviously, I think that, you know, one can overstate the point, but I do think that there is this element of looking back on one's career and saying, you know, I've done, I may may continue to work, but um, I've sort of made my statements. Yeah. uh, And I've sort of shot my best shot throughout my life and work. I'm not necessarily, don't necessarily need to operate in exactly the same way as I did in the past and um, accept these things that I've given you as a creator and artist, which, you know, I, I, I respect and understand in some way. You can only imagine, you know, what, how many plays are we in? 30, 37? This is 38, I believe, 38. 37. Yeah, I mean, that's a lot of plays and, you know, however many sonnets at this stage, right? And a few epic poems thrown in there. So, you can't begrudge the man his uh, quasi-retirement. That's right. Yeah. Agreed. So, James, all of that being said, uh, where do you put this one? So, Will, you, you've made a compelling case, I think, against my basic criticism of this play, which is its lack of drama to me, or its lack of conflict. You know, I feel like this one, we see a lot of interesting goings-on. You know, we see a lot of interesting commentary there's some great speeches, but I definitely had the experience reading it of feeling like everything was dictated and this was a play about watching Prospero move the pieces around the chessboard 
into the configurations that he wanted. You know, like I, I don't personally find there to be much of a question about how the play is going to resolve. And even over the course of the play, I think that seems very evident, right? That the way that Prospero is setting things in motion is the way that things are going to go. I mean, he comments on like the Ferdinand-Miranda relationship. Oh, it's going exactly the way I planned it, but I can't let it be too easy for them. <laughs> you know, I'm going to have to throw a few, a few like extra, extra problems their way, or I'm going to have to make Ferdinand work for it so he really values it. So, I mean, I, I think the, the closest comparison I would make to this is maybe Othello, in that Iago, I think, very strongly feels like the author of that play in the same way. Except I would say that in that play, there is more of a question, one, of the success of it, and two, of what the actual consequences of it are going to be, mm-hmm. right? You know, similarly, there's a play like Romeo and Juliet, where he just tells you straight up at the beginning of the play what's going to happen. Mm. Romeo and Juliet, right in the prologue, he says that, like, by their death, they bury their parents' strife. I'm sure I haven't gotten that quote exactly right, but pretty close. Right. right. So that, to me, is is the biggest issue with it. And I, I, I see what you're saying about it being a little bit of Prospero's journey. I think for me, it doesn't quite, that doesn't quite satisfy me plot-wise. I, I see what you're saying, but I don't necessarily view a huge change in him over the course of the play. Now, I don't know that you necessarily always need to have that kind of change for it to work. Nonetheless, I would say for me, the lack of it is what's contributing to where I don't think it works. So all that being said, I think basically of this late period, I don't like it as much as The Winner's Tale, which is my current number 16. Mm. Then I'm looking, you know, I'm looking at my list here. Richard II, Trillis and Cressida. I mean... I think it probably will is going to end up down around number 20. Maybe, yeah, between As You Like It and All's Well That Ends Well is where I'm going to put it, number ah, 22. Number 22. Oh, wow, that's that's really interesting. That's really interesting. So uh, for me, I actually like this one quite a bit, I, but it's a challenge. It's It's solidly in that middle tier. The question is how far up in the middle tier is it? I think it's definitely in my top half. When I finished it, I was pretty high on it. Like it might be in sort of my 11 spot. So out of the top 10, definitely below sort of Romeo and Juliet and certainly all of the heavy hitters. The question is, how does it fall in relation to some of my other you know, fan favorites that are kind of in the middle? The Merchant of Venice, Henry VI, Part Two, The Winter's Tale, Much Ado About Nothing. That's where it gets a little tricky for me, because do I like it more than... You know, one could make the case that it's better than Merchant of Venice to me. I could see that. I could see it being quite high. I definitely think it's better than Henry VI Part Two, but is it better than Much Ado About Nothing? And honestly, I think it's a bit of a toss-up. I think some of the writing is better uh, in terms of just pure poetry than Much Ado About Nothing, but I think Much Ado do about nothing is more entertaining to me uh, so and I'm, you liked this more than the winter's tale which i i think is the obvious yeah preliminary I, comp. I think that it's um maybe slightly more skillfully executed and and sort of more of a more of a whole than winter's tale but i like the winter's tale to be clear quite a bit actually for these late romances i guess i'm going to throw it at my number 14 spot 
which is below Much Ado About Nothing, but above Richard II and The Winner's Tale. So that's pretty good as far as I'm concerned. I guess that I, I feel that I'm not bothered by the sort of lack of conflict that we, we talked about because I think a skillful actor and cast could draw out some of these things that are suggested mm-hmm. but are not always sort of explicit or top of mind but are certainly there in the text. But a lot depends on the execution. And in that sense, I think it's got to be, it could be very badly done or it could be very well done. Anyway, at the end of the day, as far as these sort of romances go, I think it's pretty good. I definitely think it's a classic, but it's not in the absolute top of the Mm -hmm. league table as far as I'm concerned. And uh, Will, who are you going to anoint the MVP? I think we spent a fair amount of time talking about him, but Prospero is my choice. What about you? Uh, likewise, I think, you know, he just drives the action of the play so completely. Honestly, I think it would be pretty much impossible to say anyone else. Um, I'm I'm sure you could make an argument for Caliban. Maybe you could make an argument for Ariel. But I think at the end of the day, this is really Prospero's play. Yeah, I I think that's right. I think that's right. And then, Will, do you have a non-Shakespearean recommendation for us this week? I do, James. So I have been reading the 2007 history book in the Oxford History of the United States, What God Hath Wrought, which is about the early republic and sort of the transformation of America from 1815 to 1848. And this book won the Pulitzer Prize in 2008. It's a thick tome, but it is extremely readable and fascinating and just covers this period that I know a little bit about, but it does it with incredible verve and style and frankly, just great insights into everything from the Second Great Awakening to sort of Jacksonian America and Indian removal, John Quincy Adams, social reform to just the business of everyday life in America. It's quite brilliant, brimming with insights, really a sort of forgotten part of American history that I think is deeply revelatory and can tell you a lot about America today, where you just see some of our roots and pathologies and the things that are both good and bad about us are just very present in this era that I think too often gets kind of relegated uh, to the forgotten part of history to most people. So really recommend it. And it, go- it goes into everything from you know, the fight over slavery to expansion westward to the invention of the, the telegraph and, and railroads and canals and a great era to read about and, and really beautifully written uh, and carefully researched. It sounds great. Give us the title one more time. That's What Hath God Wrought, The Transformation of America, 1815 to 1848 by Daniel Walker Howe. And that's our show. Next time on Bard Flies, we will be tackling the rather hefty Henry VIII for all you fans of Tudor drama. If you like the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. Share the show with your friends and give us a glowing five-star review. You can also follow us at Bard Flies on Twitter and drop us a line at bardfliespodcast at gmail.com.